Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. It's time for the sweetest 16 of March. Hope you guys didn't have Kansas or Purdue or Arizona going too far in your bracket. All of your odds, props, promos, and parlays for college basketball are available on Bet Online Sportsbook. You can use our promo code Believe50. That's B L E A V five zero to get a fifty percent welcome bonus on your first deposit with the link in the description to this episode. Bet Online, where the game starts. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast live on the Believe Podcast Network. Except it isn't live because it is, as always, a podcast. Welcome, 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 everybody. It is a fantabulous March 24th, according to my count. It may not be that according to your count. But we appreciate you stopping in however and whenever it is that you may be listening. We've got a fun Friday show here on the Take It Easy podcast. We're going to talk about March Madness and the Sweet 16 games that were played on Thursday. More specifically, we're going to talk about the Sweet 16 game that I said is the best matchup so far in the tournament and may end up being the best matchup of the entire March Madness cycle It's Gonzaga-UCLA, the two most prominent programs on the West Coast of the last 20 years. We did all the narrative building on Monday, so if you want to check out Monday's episode of the pod for Gonzaga-UCLA pregame, you can get the post-game reaction here on the show. We're also going to talk about Marquise Noel, or as John Calipari calls him, that little guy for K-State. Kansas State, who is balling out in March Madness. He had 20 points, 19 assists, and K-State won in overtime against Michigan State. He had the game-winning steal, like one of those heroic March Madness performances where Marquise Noel, I don't know if he's got future NBA prospects, he's going to probably be remembered as one of these iconic March Madness players, especially if K-State ends up beating either FAU or Tennessee for the East Region Championship. We still don't know who's won that game yet. They're getting ready to tip off at the time of recording, but we'll see who ends up winning that game, and we can talk more about it later on the show. First off here, I want to talk about an interesting story going on in the NFL. And if you're keeping track at home, yes, we made it seven days without... No, sorry, we made it seven episodes, nine days without talking about the NFL and the free agent offseason. So nine days without football. You can check that off on your bingo card. Congratulations if you had nine days being how long we would go without talking about the NFL. Here we are. 
We're going to talk about an interesting story going on right now with Austin Eckler and the Chargers because quietly during the whole free agent the the first week of free agency where all of the moves and transactions moving and shaking is going on very quietly Austin Eckler ended up getting permission from the Chargers to seek a trade and it was kind of mixed into all the free agents signing on that first Monday of free agency so I think that's why it kind of snuck through the weeds a little bit is because all of these players like 60% of the free agents were signing within the first 24 hours of the legal tampering period, and I think it was like two hours into the legal tampering period that Austin Eckler got permission from the Chargers to seek a trade. And over the last 10 days, there's been an interesting development in this storyline that I wanted to touch on here today. And since we're going to touch on it, any chance we talk about the miserable, irrelevant Chargers, we like to play the San Diego Superchargers theme song, which is the 1970s sports anthem that was the track of my childhood, and I think is part of the reason why I love these old-timey sports anthems so much. So here's the wonderful, wacky San Diego Superchargers theme song that will live forever. So Austin Eckler is in an interesting space where he went on, I I don't know if it was his podcast or another podcast, on microphone and on camera, Austin Eckler talked about how he enjoys playing for the Chargers, he's cool with the organization, he also just recognizes that he is underpaid right now as the 10th highest paid running back in the NFL, making I think $6.5 million a year and one year away from a new contract. Austin Eckler recognizes he is underpaid and believes that someone else will pay him more money, potentially, than the Chargers. And if that is the case, Austin Eckler would like to go play for that team, potentially next season. And it's a really interesting case because I'm someone who firmly believes that these wages are being suppressed, and I'm pro-labor, and I think that players should be making more money than they are. And within the stupid structures of the NFL, there's only so much money that goes to certain players in certain positions, and it's been talked about year after year after year on this podcast and otherwise about how devalued the running back position is. And relatively speaking, this is correct. The running back position has the lowest franchise tag valuations. The teams that win championships often do it with a revolving door of running backs. This last year, Kansas City did it with a combination of 
Jarek McKinnon and Isaiah Pacheco, who were unclaimed free agents and seventh round draft picks. The Patriots for years and years just had a revolving door of generic running backs. Both the Patriots and Eagles won championships with LeGarrette Blunt making basically nothing. So it's understandable the running back position has been devalued in a sport where everyone is salary capped and you have to work within these thin margins. And what's so fascinating about this Austin Eckler story is that relatively speaking, if we take into account how ridiculous the salary cap structures are and look at just the running back position instead of evaluating Eckler in terms of everyone having value, it is really weird that Austin Eckler isn't generating trade interest. And I started thinking about why this might be the case. And the first part to it is that Austin Eckler is requesting potentially about $13 million a year on his contract for three to four years. Not all of it will be guaranteed, a lot of it up front on the contract just because Austin Eckler's 29 years old. They're probably not going to pay him on the back end for when he's 32, 33. And what's so interesting about that is, okay, Austin Eckler's probably not going to get $13 million. We're now 10 days into the Austin Eckler seeking a trade partner story, and really no trade partners have emerged. And I understand at $13 million, Austin Eckler would be the third highest paid running back in the NFL. It seems pretty clear to me that if Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barkley are going to get franchise tagged at a valuation of $10.9 million, and for those who don't know, the franchise tag essentially takes the averages of the top I think it's seven players so that when you get franchise tagged, you are in the fourth highest paid at your position range for one year fully guaranteed. And the franchise tag valuations for Jacobs and Saquon Barkley, I believe there was a third running back who got franchise tagged at the end of this last year, but the franchise tag valuation is $10.9 million and all the players who got franchise tagged are in that group making $10.9 million. If Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barkley are getting $10.9 million, Austin Eckler's not getting $10.9 million long term. And if you look at the top highest paid running backs for next season, after the $10.9 million, there's a big drop off down to $7 million for 2023 average annual value. And it is... Interesting to think about that because Austin Eckler is ahead of Miles Sanders in terms of production and value. Tony Pollard is the other running back I was thinking of. So Pollard and uh, Josh Jacobs and Saquon Barkley are all on the franchise tag. And right now they are currently all tied for fifth in terms of average annual value. And after them, there's a drop-off to Austin Eckler and James Conner, whose average annual value is that $6.2 million. And so in this case, both are correct. Austin Eckler is underpaid relative to his production, and Austin Eckler is also probably not going to get Nick Chubb money. He's not going to eclipse Dalvin Cook's money. And while this is probably true when you're looking at the base salaries for next season, in terms of average annual value, there is a possibility that 
Austin Eckler will exceed the values in base salary of the top two, uh, everyone except the top four or five highest paid running backs. For those who know, Alvin Kamara's average annual value is $15 million a year. Christian McCaffrey's is $16 million. Dalvin Cook's 12.6. And I believe Chubb is $12 million. So, yeah, Austin Eckler's probably not going to get the $13 million average annual value, even if it's on a three-year contract. And on the flip side... He is probably going to get more than $10 million per year from the Chargers or another team. And so let's say that Austin Eckler is willing to compromise on that dollar value down from $13 million. So let's say he compromises in the average, it's a three-year contract with an average annual value of, say, $11 million. Let's say it comes in at 33 you know, the, the league average is like 65%. So let's say 65% of the contract is guaranteed. At that value, is there a team ready to jump on Austin Eckler and make a move for him? And it seems like the answer is no. Because in my mind, I'm trying to think of who are the teams who would be eager to sign Austin Eckler and would be willing to give up the not significant draft compensation it would require to get Eckler. The team that came to mind, and I saw Bleacher Report list this team, was the Chicago Bears, who, going into free agency, had the most cap space in the league, ample draft picks at their disposal, more that they just acquired from Carolina. Austin Eckler, uh, they're about to lose David Montgomery. Austin Eckler would make a lot of sense for the Chicago Bears. Another team he makes a lot of sense for is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Tampa Bay doesn't have any running game. They're bringing in a new quarterback. It makes sense that Tampa would invest in Austin Eckler. And their problem is that they don't have cap space. That can be manipulated a little bit because Tampa Bay can, you know, convert it to base salary and manipulate the cap and all that stuff. So Tampa Bay makes sense. Chicago makes sense. And those are just teams that are looking for a running back to be used in the same way that the Chargers used Eckler last year, which is not as a primary runner, also a pass catching back. Eckler had fifteen hundred, has averaged 100 yards a game for the last three seasons combined. And if it weren't for his injury in 2021, he would have gone for 1,500 yards in all three seasons. He played 10 games that year and had over 900 yards of offense. And Austin Eckler is in an interesting position where if I were a team who's, you know, looking at help at the wide receiver position or is looking to spread out my offense, I could see use for Austin Eckler. Like for example, whatever the Baltimore Ravens plan to do, if Lamar Jackson is now a plan B, Bringing in Austin Eckler in that running back room for $11 million a year makes a lot of sense. If I were the New York Jets, and I know that they're not making transactions that make football sense, they're making transactions that pander to Aaron Rodgers' sense, I would have taken that money that I just gave Alan Lazard, which I believe was a four-year, $29 million contract, if I remember correctly. might have even been a little bit more. I would have taken that money that I gave to Alan Lazard and the compensation I just got trading Elijah Moore, and I would give it to Austin Eckler and trade Elijah Moore to the Chargers for Austin Eckler. And, you know, maybe you have to do a pick swap in there. 
If I were the Jets, I would have brought in Austin Eckler and used him a little bit differently than the Chargers did because you have a Brees Hall and an Austin Eckler, which means Eckler can work more as a pass-catching back. It means you can line him up at wide receiver-type positions, line him up at fullback positions and spread him out wide. There's all sorts of different things you can do with Austin Eckler, and I felt like that would have been a great move by the Jets and probably better served than trading for Alan Lazard or signing Alan Lazard or signing McCole Hardman. I think it would have been better served for them to trade for and extend Austin Eckler. And there's a lot of teams where I could make this case if it weren't so binary on this is what the running back position is worth and this is what the running back position can get you. I think there's so many interesting ways to use Austin Eckler and playing with Justin Herbert unlocked a lot of those interesting options for Eckler. I remember watching the game against the Cardinals earlier this year where the Chargers had like a 17-point fourth quarter comeback. And basically, although, I mean, the Cardinals had an atrocious defense, and basically down the field, they had Eckler spied on a linebacker, and they just went snap to Herbert, Eckler rolls out wide, complete the pass, and a linebacker can't catch up to Eckler because Eckler is too fast and too quick out of the backfield when you work him to the sidelines and have a quarterback like Herbert who can get the ball out in 2.5 seconds, and another quarterback who thrives that way on pass-catching backs rolling out of the backfield quickly is Aaron Rodgers. That's why the Jets would have made a lot of sense in my mind. It's why when you're bringing in a Justin Fields and a running scheme that's going to be built around RPOs, having that pass catching back would make a lot of sense for Justin Fields. And potentially Tampa Bay might use Eckler a little differently, but Tampa Bay makes a lot of sense for what they're trying to do. And so I'm so interested in why there hasn't been a connecting trade partner to Eckler. Different reasons than Lamar Jackson. It's not like, oh, there's collusion and suppressing wages and stuff like that. It's just interesting that everyone has decided that they are scared off by the running back position to the point where they don't want to even entertain the possibility of giving Austin Eckler wide receiver three money. Because Alan Lazard is wide receiver two and a half on the New York Jets right now. When you talk about Garrett Wilson coming in, they just signed a one-year deal to Nicole Hardman. They're still looking at Odell Beckham Jr. as a potential option. When you look at what the Jets are doing right now, like Austin Eckler would have made more sense in what they're building than signing Alan Lazard. And for Tampa Bay, I mean, it would be a different way of building it, but uh, you look at what they have with Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and potentially uh, either a veteran quarterback or a Kyle Trask coming in as the starter next year. Like It would have made a lot of sense for them to bring in Austin Eckler with or without the offensive line. They could just do things differently there in Tampa. It would have made a lot of sense for the Bears, who now have Chase Claypool, DJ Moore, the wide receiver they're going to draft with one of those 12 picks in this year's draft, or just roll out with Darnell Mooney and Cole Komet, it would have made so much sense for them to get Austin Eckler, and money wouldn't have even been a problem for Chicago. Chicago could have offered the 12 or $13 million that Eckler was asking for and been totally fine. Call it a Jaguars tax, which is my joke for no one wants to play for your team, so you have to pay them a little extra. I just don't know why these teams don't aren't interested in Austin Eckler and why there's been no traction between teams wanting to bid for Austin Eckler. I just listed three right there with the Jets 
and the uh, Tampa Bay and uh, Chicago. Those are the three that kind of make the most sense. I think you can find other teams like even Washington, the the commies who are getting re- I wouldn't wish that on Austin Eckler. That's just a team that makes sense. And there's Baltimore, if they're going to not come back with Lamar Jackson, and even if they are going to come back with Lamar Jackson, there's an argument to be made. It's just there's so many interesting combinations for Austin Eckler, and I'm just kind of surprised that there hasn't been any connection to any of them because there's just so many unique ways you can use Eckler and I'm not the most X's and O's guy in the world but we just outlined a few of them and he's also a person who just for three consecutive years gets you 100 yards every game like for three straight seasons averages 100 yards and even if he only has two more years of that left or even if the production slowly starts to decline once he hits his 30s I think you still can adjust the contract accordingly. You don't have to give up that much in a trade to acquire him, from what I understand. If Elijah Moore and Brandon Cooks and DeAndre Hopkins at the wide receiver position are getting traded for basically nothing, I, it just seems like Austin Eckler would be a really good option for four or five different teams off the top of my head, and none of them really seem interested in going after him. And I think it's just a really interesting case because... Eckler, the team that makes a lot of sense is the Chargers. They are already paying Eckler $6 million a year. The problem with the Chargers is that they're poorly run and they got to start cutting costs because they gave out so many shitty contracts last year. So I, I just don't know where the resolution is going to come here. And it's just been a really interesting story to follow. And we we're going back and forth in one of our group chats about this. And it's so interesting that the Chargers would be so okay to see Eckler walk out the door and that so many teams would not value Austin Eckler for at least the next two seasons as a solid running back who you don't even have to pay top five running back money. You could pay top 10 running back money and be basically guaranteed to get 100 yards of offense a game. And for a team like the Jets, Tampa, Chicago, even the Houston Texans, and the Chargers... 100 yards a game guaranteed is worth the 10 to $15 million you're going to be paying because you're paying a whole lot of wide receivers who have never averaged more than 70 yards a game in a season. So it, it the math doesn't add up there. Eckler does so many versatile things, and I'm just surprised that nobody's really connected to Eckler at this point. I'm not
All right, let's talk about March Madness. Sweet 16 Thursday. Had the game I was looking forward to most in the tournament. Gonzaga and UCLA. It might be the best matchup of the entire tournament. And then right before the game started, Marquise Noel of Kansas State had one of those hero ball performances. What I mean by hero ball performances is every March Madness, there is a name or a player that'll end up living on for a while because of just how heroic their performance was in a one-game winner-go-home elimination situation. And Marquise Noel for K-State is that player this time around because he put up 20 points, 19 assists, the game went to overtime. He had the game-winning steal. He was playing on an injured ankle. He had the iconic image of a reverse layup to finish the tournament. Like I said earlier, I don't know if he's going to get drafted in the NBA. The performance is going to be one that lives on for a while. And March Madness has these moments. Jalil Okafor did it in the tournament. Granted, he was a top pick in the NBA draft later. C.J. McCollum did it with Lehigh. Obviously, the Steph Curry tournament run lives forever, and Steph Curry clearly fell through the cracks when we're talking about basketball analysis. Jalen Suggs had it a couple years ago with Gonzaga. Again, a one-and-done player, obviously a lottery pick. These guys show up. Carson Edwards was someone we talked about last week with Purdue. He had the heroic... He had the hero ball performance... That was like 40 points and 35 the game before and carried Purdue to the Elite Eight in 2018. Hero ball performances end up being the ones we remember. And Marquise Noel had that for Kansas State early in the tournament. And I hope they go to the Final Four so that Marquise Noel can get all of the fanfare and publicity that's associated with the Final Four. Now for Gonzaga-UCLA, because like I said, this is the matchup of the tournament, and because we don't know what matchups will head into the next rounds, there's a pretty good chance this is the iconic matchup of the tournament, because you have the best UCLA team of the last 15 years. You have Gonzaga, who's made it to eight straight Sweet 16s, and while this isn't the best Gonzaga team of the last five years, it's a pretty high bar to hit when we're talking about number one overall seed two years in a row, played in multiple championship games. Yeah, Gonzaga's been like, I would venture to say, not just the dominant program on the West Coast of the United States, the best college basketball program, period, of the last five years. There's obviously a lot of teams to pick from. You could go to Baylor, you could go to Kansas State, the most, or sorry, Kansas, period, the Jayhawks. You could go to any of those teams and say, might be the best program in college. I'm going to nominate Gonzaga. I'm going to nominate Gonzaga for best program in college basketball over the last five years of Drew Timmy's college basketball career. He gets to be kind of the spiritual, emotional leader of the team because he's been there for the whole run and he's the not having future NBA prospects guy. Because what's so interesting about Gonzaga is that they became a one-and-done team for a couple years in there with Jalen Suggs and the perfect team and Chet Holmgren being the number one recruit in his high school class and going to Gonzaga. All of a sudden with Drew Timmy and with Corey Kispert there, they became a one-and-done team, which is wild to think about when we're talking about Gonzaga. But anyways, not to get too bogged down in the Gonzaga weeds because a lot of this is going to be celebrating UCLA because 
that game was so aesthetically pleasing to watch. And just talking about the first half first. We'll get to the rest of the game in a sec. Just in the first half, when UCLA put up 46 points, and Stan Van Gundy said on the broadcast, at one point they had 29 points and they were on pace to score 116. They scored 29 points in 10 minutes of that game. And on the other side... Drew Timmy, the whole time I'm watching the game, I'm just like, let my boy Drew Timmy cook. Because Drew Timmy had 15 points in the first 10 minutes of the game. And Gonzaga was losing by 8. Because UCLA was having one of the greatest offensive halves in tournament history to start the game. They were just hitting every shot. Every every Hawkeyes bucket. Tiger Campbell, who made 0 shots in the round of 32, made 5 of them in the first 10 minutes of the game. They were just cooking on Gonzaga. And what made it so entertaining was the runs that they went on. Because it was 29-21, to and UCLA scored 11 points in 2 minutes. And then they scored 0 points in 3 minutes. And Gonzaga went on a 9-0 run to get it within, I believe, 2 at one point. I think it was 31-21, and they got it as close as 31-29. And so Gonzaga goes on an 8-0 run or an 11-2 run or whatever you want to call it. They go on a giant run after UCLA went on an 11-2 run. Then UCLA goes on a 9-0 run. It was a back-and-forth sprint of runs, and Drew Timmy was still cooked. Drew Timmy, I think, finished with 19 in the first half. And you looked up, and they were down 13 points because UCLA had one of the greatest offensive halves any team has played in the tournament so far this year. UCLA was just incredible. And it was so much fun to watch. As someone without really a horse in the race and was super interested in watching this game, oh my god, the first half was amazing. It was just point after point, run after run. UCLA and Gonzaga were having such a great back and forth. And at the end, you looked up and it was like, oh wow, UCLA is up 13. How did that happen? Gonzaga looks like they played kind of well. Gonzaga at the end of the first half I think had like two baskets in the final six minutes so I'm not going to say like it was a perfect half but for 14 minutes Gonzaga looked awesome. Gonzaga was on pace to score 45 points in the first half and UCLA did score 45 points in the first half and it was so much fun to watch the back and forth and the runs go. 11-2 UCLA, 11-2 Gonzaga, 9-0 UCLA, and the back and forth, it was just such an entertaining first half between those two teams, and it was living up to the hype. Like, I know I put all the storylines there. I know I said this was the most intriguing matchup of March Madness, and one of the games that I was, probably the game I was most interested in watching from start to finish in the entire tournament. Like, I don't know what the Elite Eight matchups are going to be. I'm just really, really interested to see this game and this matchup, and it lived up to the hype. Hawkes and Tiger Campbell and Bailey, who's the guy who played with Bronny James, those guys were awesome. And you just looked up and it was like, oh wow, they have 46 points. How did that happen? They're on pace to score 100. And it felt like Gonzaga didn't play terrible, and all of a sudden they're down 13 points. Then we got to the second half of the game. Because in the second half of this game, Gonzaga was just as awesome as the first half. You looked up and it was like, oh man, Gonzaga's scoring so many points. Drew Timmy set a tournament career high. And remember, Drew Timmy has 
the most 20-point games in the history of March Madness. That's a that's a thing that was already existing before tonight. Drew Timmy held the record. He's still got potentially three more games left. And he's got the record for most 20-point games in a March in March Madness history. Drew Timmy put up his tournament career high with 10 minutes left in the game. He already had 33 points. Gonzaga's offense looked awesome. And UCLA did not make a shot for 12 minutes of game action. 12 straight minutes, UCLA did not make a shot from the field. That team that was on pace to score 116 points 10 minutes into the game scored four points in eight minutes. Terrible for UCLA. And it was still a fun game. Look, Gonzaga outscoring UCLA 40-18 to was still thoroughly entertaining. I'm not going to lie. Did I have Gonzaga winning in my bracket? Yes, I did. Do I have a sort of fun interest in UCLA losing? Yes, because my brother goes to UCLA, surrounded by a number of UCLA fans. Is it funny that Gonzaga from the West Coast Conference has stolen UCLA's birthright to being the program on the West Coast of college basketball? Yes, it's objectively hilarious. Gonzaga outscoring them 40-18, to just burying three-pointer after three-pointer, having Drew Timmy go for 35 points, or sorry, go for 36 points in 30 minutes was super fun to watch. Every time I'm watching Gonzaga, I just keep saying, let my boy Drew Timmy cook. And that's basically what Gonzaga did for most of the evening. UCLA tried to go one-on-one, and look, UCLA's Defensive Player of the Year tore his Achilles in the Pac-12 championship game. So granted, they were going to be shorthanded for a good portion of this game. And they tried to do the thing they could. They had a a seven-footer. I forget his name. He had a couple awesome blocks. UCLA did their best to one-on-one Drew Timmy down low, and occasionally they would try and double-team with Hawkes. But for the most part, they were just letting Drew Timmy go one-on-one, and Drew Timmy was hitting those little right-handed hook shots. He was getting layups at the rim. There was one chaos play where he kind of spins off the defenders and lays one in, and it led to a UCLA timeout. All that stuff was interesting and wild to watch. And I mean, UCLA just couldn't score at the end. And they were talking about how they were shorthanded and the bench unit wasn't very deep for them because of the injuries. All of that plays some kind of factor as we're going down the line because, I mean, how else do you explain going from scoring 45 points to scoring 20 in the second half and being outscored by almost 20 points with a 13-point halftime lead. I mean, it's just really hard to explain that. And as you're watching Gonzaga dominate UCLA, it's UCLA up 9 with 12 minutes to go, up 7 with 11, up 5 with 10 minutes to go, tie game with 8 minutes to play, Gonzaga by 2 with 6 minutes to play, Gonzaga by 5 with 5 minutes to play, Gonzaga by 7 with 4 minutes to play, Gonzaga by 10 with two and a half minutes to play. It was 72-62, Gonzaga in the lead. And then Gonzaga tried to throw the game away. Because Gonzaga gave up an and one to Jaime Jaquez. 
And then they threw the ball away on an inbounds pass with 40 seconds to play. And then Jaime Jaquez got an and one. And it's a three-point game. And then Gonzaga gets fouled. And they make one out of two free throws. And it's a four-point game. And then UCLA scores two points with Jaime Jaquez. And now it's a two-point game with 30 seconds to play. And then they foul Drew Timmy with 25 seconds to play. And Drew Timmy, the guy with 36 points, leading scorer in the history of Gonzaga, most 20-point games in the history of March Madness, guy who everyone jokes is way too old to still be playing college basketball. Drew Timmy goes 0 for 2 at the free throw line, which means to close out a game with a 10-point lead, Gonzaga threw the ball away for a turnover, went 1 for 4 at the free throw line, and committed 2 and 1 fouls on Jaime Jaquez. I don't want to say choke, but goddamn, it's hard to talk about anything worse than that for Gonzaga. And so you're watching this, and all of a sudden it's missed two free throws. UCLA gets the ball. Bailey hits a three-pointer. Now UCLA has the lead, and there's 12 seconds to play. And you're like, oh, shit. Did Gonzaga just throw this one away? And this game is just now thoroughly entertaining. Because this is... Remember I was talking earlier about the runs. The thing that was so exciting about the first half was 11-2 UCLA run. 11-2 Gonzaga run. 9-0 UCLA run. And in the second half, you're just waiting for the UCLA run. When's UCLA going to go on a run? When's UCLA going to go on a run? When's UCLA going to go on a run? And then it happened... With two and a half minutes to play, 14-3 UCLA run. After being outscored 40-18, to 14-3 UCLA run. And now they have a one-point lead with 12 seconds to play. And goddamn, when you talk about UCLA beating Gonzaga by one point in 2006, you talk about Jalen Suggs hitting the half-court buzzer beater that we got to be at at the Final Four in 2021. You talk about the two most prominent West Coast programs, and then Hawthorne, or Slothorn, whatever his name is, for Gonzaga, pulls up from the logo with seven seconds to play and buries UCLA. But they haven't buried UCLA because all of a sudden they go right down the floor and the same guy who just buried a three-pointer to give them a two-point lead from the logo steals the ball from Tiger Campbell and gets fouled, and seals the game for Gonzaga. Oh my god, just epic. And it was two of the five best teams in the country that happened to play in the Sweet 16, and it was prime time, and it was fun, and it was exciting, and we had all these crazy runs and crazy offensive explosions. Gonzaga throwing away a 10-point lead in two minutes, and ending with a half with a shot from the logo to down UCLA, chef's kiss, beautiful for the second time this week, perfection in a sporting event, Gonzaga-UCLA, one of the best college basketball games since the last time Gonzaga played UCLA, just a chef's kiss on all of it. 
these are the two most exciting programs on the west coast of college basketball and Gonzaga stole UCLA's birthright to winning twice the best UCLA team in 15 years gone by Gonzaga the Cinderella final four team that brought back UCLA basketball gone by Gonzaga oh my goodness what a game what a finish what a storyline it was just magnificent and beautiful and Gonzaga beat UCLA on a shot from the logo after they threw away a 10-point lead in a thoroughly entertaining game. Drew Timmy had 36 points. Jaime Jaquez had 29 points. Man, that game delivered almost as well as the World Baseball Classic delivered. Just quintessential, perfect stakes, storylines, entertainment, action, drama. It had all the five tools of an incredible sporting event, and Gonzaga UCLA delivered. Delivered. I told y'all it was going to be the biggest matchup of the tournament thus far, and based on how the Elite Eight breaks down and how the Final Four breaks down, by the way, shout out Florida Atlantic. They're going to the Elite Eight as a nine seed. They had never won a tournament game before this year. Now they're going to the Elite Eight out of Conference USA. Shout out to you, Florida Atlantic. Even though we don't know all the Elite Eight and Final Four matchups, I feel pretty confident going out on a limb. You're not going to find a better matchup in the entire tournament than you did with UCLA and Gonzaga, two of the five to seven best teams in the country, depending how you felt about Gonzaga before tonight. And they delivered with a final four 2021 level performance in the Sweet 16 because they just happened to play each other in the Sweet 16 because of how the bracket broke down. Beautiful, amazing, perfection, had all the five tools. It had stakes of a of your season on the line, one game elimination. It had all the storylines that we've talked about all week. The two most prominent West Coast programs, the best UCLA team of the last 15 years. Gonzaga stealing UCLA's birthright to championships. The rivalry because they've had two incredible tournament games in the past 20 years. All the storylines, entertainment from the stars and scoring and incredible runs, action, drama with Gonzaga throwing the game away at the end. It had everything, and it was beautiful to watch. Beautiful to watch between Gonzaga and UCLA in the Sweet 16. The game of March Madness has already happened. There will be games with higher stakes. There will never be a game as good as that one in this year's March Madness and maybe for the next two years of March Madness. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for stopping in here to the Take It Easy podcast. We've got episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, occasional wired up on Sundays, and I'm going to bet you that this week we're going to have a wired up given all the March Madness action going on over the next couple days. Leave a five-star review, a download, any and all support is greatly appreciated for this here podcast. We'll talk to you again uh, sometime soon. We're off for the weekend. Hope you all have a fantabulous couple of days off. In the meantime, take it easy. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. 
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.